Nana couldn't believe his eyes. The Jeheni leader, now past 70, had taken a leadership role over his people following the violent death of Victorio the previous year. And Nana's current location in Arizona was a secret, as army officers from all over Texas and New Mexico were even then looking to find and punish him, and army officers in Arizona were on alert for any news of the wily old man. But he had come back to Arizona on something of a reconnaissance mission. There was a movement happening among the various bands that made up the Apache. Centered to the north of Fort Apache in the White Mountains, it was a religious fervor that had started to grow. Nana, unsure what to think, had come in person to see what this new preaching held. And he had spent all night at a Tiss Winfield dance, observing and then reluctantly participating. Finally, near dawn, the dance was halted and Nana and others let themselves be led to the crest of a nearby hill to meet the coming of the rising sun. And that's where he claims he saw it. As the leader of this company prayed to the Apache deity Yusin, figures began to appear slowly. And these ghostly, ethereal personages were visible only until the knee, before they vanished with the first rays of sunlight. But Nana knew what he saw, and he told all about it he had witnessed none other than the spirits of the great leaders of the Apache, Mangas Coloradus, Cochise, and finally, Victorio. And the man whose prayer had made them appear, called the Dreamer by the White Eyes, promised even more. Nana had seen this, and soon the whole Apacheria was in an uproar. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ. The History of Arizona. Episode 92, The Dreamer. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have to go all the way back to episode 72 to pick up on one of our narrative threads. If that's a little too far back to remember, allow me to do a slight recap. Victorio, a leader among the Chicheni band, had broken out of San Carlos with his people. And when the U.S. government refused to let them live in their traditional homeland at Ojo Caliente in New Mexico, Victorio decided that he was going to burn everything down or die trying. And that would actually happen with him being cornered and killed by Mexican troops at Tres Castillos in October 1880. Meanwhile, Geronimo had broken out of San Carlos after he had seriously reprimanded his nephew and the young man had killed himself. But after some time marauding around Mexico and a little bit in Arizona, he had been persuaded to return to San Carlos, where he settled down by early January 1880. And that's where we left off, so let's pick up the narrative from that point. Geronimo and his followers settled with his longtime comrade-in-arms, Hua, or Ja, or Hua, however you want to pronounce it, on the north bank of the Gila River, roughly 15 miles upstream from the agency office. This was also near the Chokonan camp of Naichi, the son of Cochise. And Geronimo would grow close to Naichi, the hereditary leader of the Chokonans, and become something of a counselor to the younger man. Though we have to remember that Geronimo is not a chief nor is he even that well-liked by the various bands of the Chiricahua. One rising Apache leader said, quote, 
I have known Geronimo all my life up to his death and had never known anything good about him. End quote. His followers numbered only a little more than two dozen, and he was more feared for his power, those special abilities granted to him from Mucin, which he seems to have displayed often enough to keep people believing. But the army officers of the time are all pretty clear on their dislike for him, with one proclaiming he was, quote, thoroughly vicious, intractable, and treacherous, and another calling him, quote, a schemer and liar. That mistrust didn't make things easier while Victorio was running around the Southwest attacking any white eyes he could get his hands on. His wife and children and others close to him were still at San Carlos, and the fear was eventually more would bolt from the reservation to join him. So every time Victorio came anywhere near close, everyone was rounded up and forced to come down from the more mountainous areas to the hot, marshy riverbed along the Gila. And unfortunately, this is where malaria flourished, striking the Chiricahuans mercilessly. In June 1880, six months after Hua and Geronimo's arrival, Colonel Eugene A. Carr would visit San Carlos and report that Naichi told him a full third of his people had died since moving to the reservation just four years earlier. Carr and others would also report that the medicine men among the Apache felt powerless against this disease, but their people also mistrusted and did not like taking the medicine that the Americans offered them. Just a month earlier, in May 1880, they would tell a visiting Tom Jeffords that because of the malaria and the fact that reservation officials herded them like cattle any time Victorio so much as sneezed, they were thinking of jumping the reservation. And Jeffords, always trying to keep the peace, encouraged them to just wait a week, just a week, for the new Indian agent to arrive. Okay, also casting back to episode 72 now, Agent Henry Hart had been removed from his post following the multitude of scandals that would eventually take down the U.S. Commissioner of Indian Affairs himself. Captain Adna R. Chaffee had been running things since then, but starting June 1st, 1880, he was replaced by Joseph C. Tiffany, who would have the honor of being the last Indian agent appointed by the Dutch Reformed Church. The church board had been calling the shots since the Grant administration, but the results had definitely been mixed. Tiffany, whom the Apaches would call Big Belly for his slightly rotund figure, had gotten the nod despite several notable people, including Governor Fremont, requesting that Jeffords be made Indian agent again. Also, I will throw in here that none other than John Clum, right before his tombstone days, threw his hat into the ring, writing that everyone knew what he had accomplished, leaving out the part where he had thrown a hissy fit and quit. General Orlando Wilcox, the top military official for the Territory of Arizona, actually tried to get Tiffany's appointment reversed, but that failed to gain any traction. Now, the record that I find is kind of split on Tiffany. Some see him as unexperienced and incompetent, while others paint him as a sincere humanitarian, just lacking experience. Thomas Sheridan writes that some of his charges at San Carlos were convinced Tiffany was selling their rations off the reservation. Now, he did make a good few moves early on, including instantly restoring the full coffee and sugar rations that Hart had halved during his time. After a year in the position, he would happily point to some progress, 
including the regular flow of rations, encouraging Apache to make permanent settlements so they could practice sustained agriculture, the building of dams and a school, and successfully lobbying Congress for farming implements. The making and drinking of Tiswin remained a high problem, however, but really, if Prohibition has taught us anything, it's that nothing is going to solve the issue of moonshine. For our immediate purposes, after learning that Hua and Naichi were unhappy over their perceived confinement compared to other bands, and the rampant malaria, Tiffany allowed them to head permanently up into the mountains. Truth be told, he probably staved off another breakout with that single action. The whole point became moot, however, in October 1880, when news of Victorio's defeat in Mexico became known. Edwin R. Sweeney, whose thorough and voluminous book, From Cochise to Geronimo, I'm leaning on heavily, says that the reaction among the Chiricahua was sort of mixed. There was sadness over the great chief's death, but others shrugged, realizing that it was the end that Victorio had really wanted. He went down swinging, as it were. And really, after Victorio was gone, most of the reports from 1880 and 1881 called the Chiricahua bands content and happy in their new living situation. That was probably a misreading of the situation, with officers and Indian agents confusing a lack of hostility for peace. In reality, everything could collapse with just one really good bump. And that bump came along over the summer of 1881. His name was Nak I Detkline, but the white soldiers he interacted with couldn't pronounce that, so they called him Bobby Del Cline, or more simply, the Dreamer. And just so I don't offend any Apache listeners out there by butchering his name again and again, I'm going to call him the Dreamer from here on out too. He was a leader among one of the three Sibiku bands who, if I'm reading my Apache flow chart correctly, were another branch of the Western Apache, just like the White Mountain, Tonto, and Chiricahua. His people lived east of the White Mountains, along Canyon Creek, Carrizo Creek, and Sibiku Creek. By the time we're talking about, he's usually described as a frail older man, though just a few years earlier he had been part of Crook's Scouts. He and his people had been removed to San Carlos in 1875, just like nearly everybody else, but they had slowly drifted back to the Fort Apache area. But in May 1881, he received a pass from Tiffany down in San Carlos to move to more traditional lands along Sibiku Creek, roughly 45 miles north of Fort Apache. Shortly after that, the rumors started to trickle down. Nak I Det Kline, the dreamer, began hosting great dances, which are not social gatherings, but more religious in nature. Author Paul Andrew Hutton compares them almost to the backwood camp meetings of frontier preachers, where people brought offerings and would participate in the dance. Men and women would dance in lines facing a center point, like the spokes on a wheel, and they would be sprinkled with hottentin, the pollen of the tulip plant, which had religious significance while moving to the rhythm of drums. And of course, Tiswin was distributed liberally. And at these dances, or so the rumors went, the dreamer claimed to be able to raise the spirit of deceased Apache leaders. 
From this, a true religious movement, which almost combined Christian resurrection themes with native ideology, steadily blossomed and the reputation of the dreamer, alternatively described as a medicine man and a prophet, grew. More than one writer has compared it to the ghost dance that would have a similar surge several years later on the Sioux Reservation in the Midwest. And it was during this time that Nana, who had taken up the vengeful mantle from Victorio, smuggled himself into Arizona to learn more about this dance. He would actually get onto the San Carlos Reservation and spend some time with Nietzsche before heading north. Now, the effect of the dreamer and his dance on the Chiricahua is in dispute. While definitely it was attracting attention among the Sibiku and White Mountain Apache, and even among some Tonto Apache and Yavapai, the members of the various Chiricahua bands who attended seems small. Hutton remarks that Nana, Hua, Geronimo, and Naichi were all convinced of the Dreamer's power, which comes from the writings of Hua's son years later. But historian Sweeney says we have no real evidence that Hua or even Naichi went north to attend one of the dances for themselves, and they showed no real predilection towards this medicine man or his dance. And we definitely know that they did not participate in any of the hostilities that were to come. American officers from both San Carlos and Fort Apache were growing concerned with this new religious movement, which seemed predicated on resurrecting Apache leaders, all of whom had fought at one time or another against the American occupiers, of course. Various Americans or members of Tiffany's police force would attend these dances firsthand, which kept gaining notoriety, especially from disaffected Apache upset about their current circumstances. I should note that one of these informants who attended the dance was none other than Mickey Free, a.k.a. Felix Ward, a.k.a. the boy whose kidnapping had set off the Bascom affair. And that will come up a little later in our story. But the dances were so worrying that Tiffany ordered his chief of police to the Dreamer's Village with orders to bring him down to San Carlos, for his own safety, don't you know? But the old man prudently hid out in the mountains. He did move a little closer to Fort Apache, where at subsequent dances he failed to raise the dead, but claimed that he had been able to tap into more supernatural power. Finally, though, in late July 1881, the Dreamer did travel to San Carlos to meet with Tiffany, who quickly told him to stop holding these dances. They were making everyone nervous. The Dreamer tried to explain to him the dances were benign and a way to bring the disparate Apache bands together, but this did not assuage Tiffany's fears. Hutton writes that Tiffany was probably fearful for the old man's safety. What happens when all the people who had given him gifts realize that he can't actually raise the dead? But the Dreamer had no intention of stopping these dances, and in August 1881 he was holding more, though he started tempering expectations by saying that he could not raise the dead until all the whites had left the country. You probably won't be shocked to hear that what many of his followers heard was, we need to kill all the whites so he can bring back our beloved leaders. Nana seems to have been inspired by this as he went on another raiding spree in the summer of 1881 through both New Mexico and Texas. In this, he was calling upon his own power from Usen. His people believed he had power over rattlesnakes and bullets, meaning that they could always find ammunition when they needed it. By mid-August, Tiffany had come to the conclusion 
that it was time to forcefully rein in this Apache prophet. Writing to Colonel Carr at Fort Apache, the Indian agent said it, quote, would be well to arrest Nakai Decline and send him off or having him killed without arresting him, end quote. And you'll notice there is no more of this for-his-own-good excuse. Sweeney writes that this seems like an overreaction, given that the Apache had not rebelled, neither had they actually shed any blood. Still, there were concerns about a pan-Apache movement, and when it became known that some Chiricahuan Apache under a man named Bonito, who was born into the White Mountain Band, were going to attend a dance on August 20th, that sent fears through the roof. So much so that the Dreamer actually postponed the dance by several days. On August 22, 1881, Chief Pedro of the White Mountain Apache and a small group of followers visited with Carr at Fort Apache. Here, the elderly chief tried to tell the colonel that all was well, and that the dances were not a threat to anyone and the dreamer was not fomenting rebellion. Pedro and his people had always been friendly to the Americans, he said, and the Apache were dancing for entertainment just like the White Eyes did. According to Pedro, translated through his son, quote, when he, that is the dreamer, has a dance, he wants to have it without being disturbed. It is to bring the dead back and he don't want to be disturbed, end quote. Unfortunately, Carr had also heard from General Wilcox, his CO and the overall military leader for the territory, and he agreed with Tiffany. Something about this Indian doctor had to be done. On August 24th, Carr met with his officers to plan their next move. It was agreed that one more attempt to bring the Dreamer in was necessary, so Sergeant Cutmouth Mose, a trusted Apache scout with a scar that gave him his nickname, was dispatched. Mose would report back that there was a big dance planned in just a few days and that Nakai Detkline might come to the fort after that. Obviously, that wasn't going to do, so on August 29th, Carr made a grand show of leaving Fort Apache with 84 soldiers and 23 Apache scouts, with the intention to arrest the Dreamer with as little fuss as possible. Spoiler, that's not going to happen. And, just in case you are superstitious, the first night out of the fort, a comet was seen streaking across the sky overhead. Comets, of course, being widely recognized signs in former times of coming bad news and or disaster. On August 30th, they came to the Dreamer's Rancheria and informed him that he was coming with them. As long as he, or the Apache around him, some of whom were already wearing paint, did not resist, no one was to be harmed. The old man, rising from his bed of a Navajo blanket, complied, though those who had actually escorted him couldn't help but notice the Apache around him were painted and had already stripped off most of their clothing, something that they did before attacks. Still, Carr felt confident and after riding to a campsite some length away, ordered his men to look after the prisoner and to keep any armed Apache from approaching. But one of the armed Apache who were milling about was Dandy Jim, an Apache scout and known to the army. He was, of course, allowed to pass into the camp. And it's just about here that one of Carr's lieutenants noticed that the Apache scouts they had brought with them 
had arranged themselves on a mesa about 20 yards above the main camp. Before the realization of what was happening dawned on them, the scouts, now joined by more Apache, opened fire on the soldiers, with Dandy Jim shooting a captain right there in the camp. All but one of the 23 Apache scouts had turned on the Americans, joined by roughly 30 of their Apache brethren. With bullet fire all around them, Carr ordered that the Dreamer be killed. Now. The first man who attempted to shoot him was taken out by a rifle bullet himself, but the second man shot the medicine man through the head. After the sun started to set and the Apache bullets lessened, it was determined that Nakaidet Kline was remarkably, improbably, still alive. So another soldier took an axe to his skull just to finish the job. Hutton adds ominously that from then on, the Apaches would duplicate this act to repay the White Eyes for the Dreamer's death. I should note here, for the record, that this incident right here is the only time in their long service that the Apache scouts were anything other than faithful and dutiful to their assignment. Officials would spend a good amount of time looking for the scouts who had turned on Carr, with Mickey Free being sent to help suss them out. Hutton makes the point that this must have been an especially hard assignment for Mickey. The Apache already blamed him for the start of hostilities between the White Eyes and the Apache, and now he was essentially hunting down the people that had taken him in. Still, he did his job efficiently, and eventually he would help locate and arrest five of the scouts that had fired on Carr. Three of them, Dandy Jim, Deadshot, and Skippy would be hung at Fort Grant in May of 1882. Two others would actually be sent to serve jail time at none other than the rock itself, Alcatraz. But that's getting ahead of the story. In the immediate aftermath, word of the ambush started percolating everywhere. And most versions held that Carr and his entire unit had been completely wiped out, that's the story that Mickey Free, investigating another Apache attack in the area, heard and reported, and what was eventually picked up by papers nationwide, with a little bit of fudging of details to make it more suitably dramatic. However, Carr and his men were able to limp back into Fort Apache on September 1st, three days after so bravely leaving on their mission. They had been harassed the entire way home, with seven soldiers now dead and three more wounded and the Apache were not done yet. They would kill four civilians and three more soldiers around Fort Apache and, in a very bold move, actually attacked the fort itself, which was almost unheard of. They would be repulsed, of course, but still it was a major sign that the army had a serious problem on their hands. With their normally loyal scouts having turned on them, General Wilcox and Colonel Carr now hoped to recruit new scouts from the bands that had not participated in this latest rebellion, and that meant the Chiricahua down in San Carlos. While Naichi originally seemed open to the idea, after conversations with officials, he declined to have his band help out. Even an intercession by Tom Jeffords could not persuade him. Naichi always thinking about his father's words to live at peace with the whites for as long as possible, made sure to profess friendship and support and that he would definitely protect his people from hostiles, but they were not getting involved in this. 
It's possible he declined because he simply did not want his people to get involved. But it's also possible that he declined because the Chiricahua had been friends with the White Mountain since his father's day and he didn't want to jeopardize that. And though he probably earnestly desired to stay out of this whole mess, fate had other plans. Because, quite simply, the army overreacted to this whole thing. That's not to say that it wasn't a serious uprising by the Apache, but the worst of it was already behind them. Several historians make the argument that the overreaction was because of a lack of proper communication about the scale of the rebellion between Carr, Wilcox, and General William Tecumseh Sherman, then serving as the commanding general of the army. Soldiers were hastily reassigned to the Arizona Territory and began gathering all around the San Carlos Reservation. For the Chiricahua Apache, who knew about the issues with Carr's Column, it still seemed like there were a few too many soldiers around just to take care of that. And despite Tiffany's assurances that the troop presence had nothing to do with the Chiricahua, many in their ranks were starting to feel a little nervous, especially Juan and Geronimo. It bears repeating that those two in particular were always going to be skittish around troops. They had come to San Carlos a year and a half ago in good faith, not because they had been beaten militarily and captured. Many historians point out that Geronimo in particular still remembered being captured and imprisoned by Clum, which instilled in him a deep mistrust of American officials. As every single book I have has repeated, one Chiricahua man, Chato, would say, quote, Geronimo was just like a wild animal. Troops made him nervous, end quote. And then the army did another thing that would make everything worse. Involved in the attack on Carr's column was a white mountain Apache leader named George. He and Bonito, the white mountain Apache by birth, but a Chiricahua Apache by marriage, had been believers in the Dreamer and had been to his dances. George and Bonito had voluntarily turned themselves into the San Carlos Agency in the weeks following the attack, where they were put under observation but not thrown in jail or anything. But as the pressure from Washington mounted on Wilcox, he decided to make an example of the pair and have them arrested. On Friday, September 30th, 1881, so just a month after the attack on Carr's column, the army moved on identified hostile Apache who were coming to collect their usual rations at San Carlos or its constituent sub-agencies. It turned out to be something of a successful raid as they did nab 45 Apache and locked them up in a schoolhouse. Except they didn't get George or Benito. George had actually promised to turn himself in, but at the last minute he thought better of it and he ran. He and Bonito ran straight to the camp of Nietzsche and Hua, where they proceeded to spin a nightmare scenario to their fellow Apache. In George's telling, the soldiers were coming to arrest them, kill women and children, clap the Chiricahua leaders in iron, and deport them all to some awful distant place. And though none of that was strictly true, because of the troop buildup over the past few weeks, everyone was willing to believe it. 
Tom Jeffords would later claim that he was in Nightshade's camp that night and that he couldn't do a thing to assure them that it simply wasn't going to happen. A council was held to decide how to respond, and Hua and Geronimo instantly were the dominant voices. In particular, Geronimo argued that the White Eyes could not and never could be trusted, reminding those present about the fate of Mangus Coloradas and how Cochise had been betrayed at Apache Pass. He vowed to leave the reservation immediately and take up the fight again, recalling in his later memoirs that he thought, quote, it more manly to die on the warpath than to be killed in prison, end quote. Hua was equally determined, and the other leaders were soon agreeing with him. While plenty were hesitant, only one actually dissented, but Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley tells us that that guy was straight up ignored. The surprising part here is that Nietzsche decided to leave with them. His Chaconan band had lived at San Carlos since 1876. He was the son of Cochise, who had promised to live at peace with the White Eyes for as long as feasible. But now, with George asserting that doom was on the way, and with Hua and Geronimo railing against their people's cruel treatment by the Americans, he was caught up in the arguments and made the decision to break out with the rest. So, at 10.30pm on the night of September 30th, 1881, some 375 Chaconans, Badonkahis, and Nednis packed up and slipped out of San Carlos. Ironically enough, George, whose wild tales had spurned this latest exodus, decided at the last minute not to leave the reservation. The plan for the rest was to slip down into Mexico. It would be rough going there, but Nietzsche may have rationalized that he had lost as many men to malaria at San Carlos as Hua had lost to battles in Mexico. However, Nietzsche was not prepared for what lay ahead, and would lament later about being caught up in the emotion of the moment as he watched a full quarter of the people who left San Carlos die in Mexico. I have always been sorry that I left, for we have suffered a great deal, he would come to say. And that's where we're going to leave things for this week, as Geronimo breaks out of San Carlos for the second, but not last, time. Join me next week as we follow the Chiricahua on their journey to Mexico, which meant once again trying to outrun, outgun, or outfox a now truly enraged U.S. Army. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.